Section 9 of Hunger by Knut Homsen, translated by George Egerton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3 continued. Good evening. Good evening, she answers. Excuse me, was she looking for anything? I had noticed her before. Could I be of assistance to her in any way? Begged pardon, by the way, so earnestly for inquiring. Yes, she did not quite know. No one lived inside that door besides three or four horses and myself. It was, for that matter, only a stable and a tinker's workshop. She was certainly on a wrong track if she was seeking any one there. At this she turns her head away and says, I am not seeking for anybody. I am only standing here. It was really only a whim. I... She stops. Indeed, really, she only stood there, just stood there, evening after evening, just for a whim's sake. That was a little odd. I stood and pondered over it, and it perplexed me more and more. I made up my mind to be daring. I jingled my money in my pocket, and asked her, without further ado, to come and have a glass of wine some place or another. In consideration that winter had come, ha, ha. It needn't take very long, but perhaps she would scarcely. Ah, no, thanks. She couldn't well do that. No, she couldn't do that. But would I be so kind as to accompany her a little way? She, it was rather dark to go home now, and she was rather nervous about going up Carl Johann after it got so late. We moved on. She walked at my right side. A strange, beautiful feeling empowered me. The certainty of being near a young girl. I looked at her the whole way along. The scent of her hair, the warmth that irradiated from her body, the perfume of woman that accompanied her, the sweet breath every time she turned her face towards me. Everything penetrated in an ungovernable way through all my senses. So far I just caught a glimpse of a full, rather pale face behind the veil and a high bosom that curved out against her cape. The thought of all that hidden beauty, which I surmised lay sheltered under the cloak and veil, bewildered me, making me idiotically happy without any reasonable grounds. I could not endure it any longer. I touched her with my hand, passed my fingers over her shoulder, and smiled imbecilely. How queer you are, said I. Am I, really, in what way? Well, in the first place, simply, she had a habit of standing outside a stable door, evening after evening, without any object whatever, just for a whim's sake. Oh, well, she might have her reason for doing so. Besides, she liked staying up late at night. It was a thing she had always had a great fancy for. Did I care about going to bed before twelve? I? If there was anything in the world I hated! It was going to bed before twelve o'clock at night. Ah, there you see. She too was just the same. She took this little tour in the evenings when she had nothing to lose by doing so. She lived up in St. Olaf's place. Yahale, I cried. I beg pardon. I only said Yahale. It's all right. Continue. She lived up in St. Olaf's place, lonely enough, together with her mother to whom one couldn't talk because she was so deaf. Was there anything odd in her liking to get out for a little? 
No, not at all, I replied. No, well, what then? I could hear by her voice that she was smiling. Hadn't she a sister? Yes, an older sister. But, by the way, how did I know that? She had gone to Hamburg. Lately? Yes, five weeks ago. From where did I learn that she had a sister? I didn't learn it at all. I only asked. We kept silence. A man passes us with a pair of shoes under his arm. Otherwise, the street is empty as far as we can see. Over at the Tivoli, a long row of colored lamps are burning. It no longer snows. The sky is clear. Gracious, don't you freeze without an overcoat? inquires the lady, suddenly looking at me. Should I tell her why I had no overcoat? Make my sorry condition known at once and frighten her away? As well first as last. Still, it was delightful to walk here at her side and keep her in ignorance yet a while longer. So I lied. I answered. No, not at all. And in order to change the subject, I asked, Have you seen the menagerie in the Tivoli? No, she answered. Is there really anything to see? Suppose she were to take it into her head to wish to go there, into that blaze of light with the crowd of people. Why, she would be filled with shame. I would drive her out again, with my shabby clothes and lean face. Perhaps she might even notice that I had no waistcoat on. Ah, no. There is sure to be nothing worth seeing. And a lot of happy ideas occurred to me, of which I at once made use. A few sparse words, fragments left in my desiccated brain. What would one expect from such a small menagerie? On the whole, it did not interest me in the least to see animals in cases. These animals know that one is standing staring at them. They feel hundreds of inquisitive looks upon them, are conscious of them. No, I would prefer to see animals that didn't know one observed them. Shy creatures that nestle in their lair and lie with sluggish green eyes and lick their claws and muse, eh? Yes, I was certainly right in that. It was only animals in all their peculiar fearfulness and peculiar savagery that possessed a charm. The soundless, stealthy tread in the total darkness of night. The hidden monsters of the woods. The shrieks of a bird flying past. The wind. The smell of blood. The rumbling in space. In short, the reigning spirit of the kingdom of savage creatures hovering over savagery. The unconscious poetry but I was afraid this bored her. The consciousness of my great poverty seized me anew and crushed me. If I had only been in any way well enough dressed to have given her the pleasure of this little tour in the Tivoli, I could not make out this creature, who could find pleasure in letting herself be accompanied up the whole of Karl Johann Street by a half-naked beggar. What in the name of God was she thinking of? And why was I walking there, giving myself airs, and smiling idiotically at nothing? Had I any reasonable cause, either, for letting myself be worried into a long walk by this dainty, silken-clad bird? Mayhap it did not cost me an effort. Did I not feel the ice of death go right into my heart, at even the gentlest puff of wind that blew against us? Was not madness running riot in my brain? just for lack of food for many months at a stretch. Yet she hindered me from going home, 
to get even a little milk into my parched mouth, a spoonful of sweet milk that I might perhaps be able to keep down. Why didn't she turn her back on me and let me go to the deuce? I became distracted. My despair reduced me to the last extremity. I said, Considering all things, you ought not to walk with me. I disgrace you right under everyone's eyes, if only with my clothes. Yes, it is positively true. I mean it. She starts, looks up at me, and is silent. Then she exclaims suddenly, Indeed, though! More, she doesn't say. What do you mean by that? I queried. Ugh, no. You make me feel ashamed. We have not got very far now. And she walked on a little faster. We turned up University Street, and could already see the lights in St. Olaf's place. Then she commenced to walk slowly again. I have no wish to be indiscreet, I say. But won't you tell me your name before we part? And won't you, just for one second, lift up your veil so that I can see you? I would be really so grateful. A pause. I walked on in expectation. You have seen me before, she replies. Yahali, I say again. Beg pardon? You followed me once for half a day, almost right home. Were you tipsy that time? I could hear again that she smiled. Yes, I said. Yes, worse luck, I was tipsy that time. That was horrid of you. And I admitted contritely that it was horrid of me. We reach the fountains. We stop and look up at the many-lighted windows of number two. Now you mustn't come any farther with me, she says. Thank you for coming so far. I bowed. I daren't say anything. I took off my hat and stood bareheaded. I wonder if she will give me her hand. Why don't you ask me to go back a little way with you? She asks, in a low voice, looking down at the toe of her shoe. Great heavens! I reply, beside myself. Great heavens, if you only would! Yes, but only a little way. And we turn around. I was fearfully confused. I absolutely did not know if I were on my head or my heels. This creature upset all my chain of reasoning, turned it topsy-turvy. I was bewitched and extraordinarily happy. It seemed to me as if I were being dragged enchantingly to destruction. She had expressly willed to go back. It wasn't my notion. It was her own desire. I walk on and look at her and get more and more bold. She encourages me, draws me to her by each word she speaks. I forget for a moment my poverty, my humble position, my whole miserable condition. I feel my blood course madly through my whole body, as in the days before I caved in and resolved to feel my way by a little ruse. By the way, it wasn't you I followed that time, said I. It was your sister. Was it my sister? She questions, in the highest degree amazed. She stands still, looks up at me, and positively waits for an answer. She puts the question in all sober earnest. Yes, I replied. Hum, that is to say, it was the younger of the two ladies who went on in front of me. The youngest, eh, eh, aha! She laughed out all at once, loudly, heartily like a child. Oh, how sly you are! You only said that just to get me to raise my veil, didn't you? Ah, I thought so. But you may just wait till you are blue first, just for punishment. 
We began to laugh and jest. We talked incessantly all the time. I did not know what I said. I was so happy. She told me that she had seen me once before, a long time ago, in the theatre. I had then comrades with me, and I behaved like a madman. I must certainly have been tipsy that time, too, more's the shame. Why did she think that? Oh, I had laughed so. Really? Ah, yes, I used to laugh a lot in those days. But now not any more. Oh, yes, now too. It is a splendid thing to exist, sometimes. We reached Karl Johann. She said, Now we won't go any farther, and we returned through University Street. When we arrived at the fountain once more, I slackened my pace a little. I knew that I could not go any farther with her. Well, now you must turn back here, she said, and stopped. Yes, I suppose I must. But a second after, she thought I might as well go as far as the door with her. Gracious me, there couldn't be anything wrong in that, could there? No, I replied. But when we were standing at the door, all my misery confronted me clearly. How was one to keep up one's courage when one was so broken down? Here I stood before a young lady, dirty, ragged, torn, disfigured by hunger, unwashed and only half-clad. It was enough to make one sink into the earth. I shrank into myself, bent my head involuntarily, and said, May I not meet you any more, then? I had no hope of being permitted to see her again. I almost wished for a sharp no that would pull me together a bit and render me callous. Yes, she whispered softly, almost inaudibly. When? I don't know. A pause. Won't you be so kind as to lift your veil, only just for a minute? I asked, so that I can see whom I've been talking to, just for a moment, for indeed I must see whom I have been talking to. Another pause. You can meet me outside here on Tuesday evening, she said. Will you? Yes, dear lady, if I have permission to. At eight o'clock. Very well. I stroked down her cloak with my hand, merely to have an excuse for touching her. It was a delight to me to be so near her. And you mustn't think all too badly of me, she added. She was smiling again. No. Suddenly she made a resolute movement and drew her veil up over her forehead. We stood and gazed at one another for a second. Yahali, I cried. She stretched herself up, flung her arms round my neck, and kissed me right on the mouth, only once, swiftly, bewilderingly swiftly, right on the mouth. I could feel now her bosom heaved. She was breathing violently. She wrenched herself suddenly out of my clasp called a good-night, breathlessly whispering, and turned and ran up the stairs without a word more. The hall door shut. It snowed still more the next day, a heavy snow mingled with rain, great wet flakes that fell to earth and were turned to mud. The air was raw and icy. I woke somewhat late, with my head in a strange state of confusion, my heart intoxicated from the foregone evening by the agitation of that delightful meeting. In my rapture, I had lain a while awake and fancied Yahali at my side. I spread out my arms and embraced myself and kissed the air. 
At length I dragged myself out of bed and procured a fresh cup of milk, and straight on top of that a plate of beef. I was no longer hungry, but my nerves were in a highly strung condition. I went off to the clothes shop in the bazaar. It occurred to me that I might pick up a second-hand waistcoat cheaply, something to put on under my coat. It didn't matter what. I went up the steps to the bazaar and took hold of one and began to examine it. While I was thus engaged, an acquaintance came by. He nodded and called up to me. I let the waistcoat hang and went down to him. He was a designer and was on his way to his office. Come with me and have a glass of beer, he said, but hurry up, I haven't much time. What lady was that you were walking with yesterday evening? Listen here now, said I, jealous of his bare thought, supposing it was my fiancée. By Jove! he exclaimed. Yes, it was all settled yesterday evening. This nonplussed him completely. He believed me implicitly. I lied in the most accomplished manner to get rid of him. We ordered the beer, drank it, and left. Well, good-bye. Oh, listen, he said suddenly. I owe you a few shillings. It is a shame, too, that I haven't paid you long ago. But now you shall have them during the next few days. Yes, thanks, I replied. But I knew that he would never pay me back the few shillings. The beer, I am sorry to say, went almost immediately to my head. The thought of the previous evening's adventure overwhelmed me, made me delirious. Supposing she were not to meet me on Tuesday, supposing she were to begin to think things over, to get suspicious, get suspicious of what? My thoughts gave a jerk and dwelt upon the money. I grew afraid deadly afraid of myself. The theft rushed in upon me in all its details. I saw the little shop, the counter, my lean hands as I seized the money. And I pictured to myself the line of action the police would adopt when they would come to arrest me. Irons on my hands and feet, no, only on my hands, perhaps only on one hand, the dock, the clerk taking down the evidence, the scratch of his pen, Perhaps he might take a new one for the occasion. His look, his threatening look. There, Herr Tongen, to the cell, the eternally dark. Humph! I clenched my hands tightly to try and summon courage, walked faster and faster, and came to the marketplace. There I sat down. Now, no child's play. How in the wide world could anyone prove that I had stolen? Besides, the huckster's boy dare not give an alarm, even if it should occur to him some day how it all had happened. He valued his situation far too dearly for that. No noise, no scenes, may I beg. But all the same, this money weighed in my pocket sinfully, and gave me no peace. I began to question myself, and I became clearly convinced that I had been happier before, during the period in which I had suffered in all honor. And Yahali, had I too not polluted her with the touch of my sinful hands, Lord, O oh Lord my God, Yahali. I felt as drunk as a bat, jumped up suddenly, and went straight over to the little cake woman who was sitting near the chemist under the sign of the elephant. I might even yet lift myself above dishonor. It was far from being too late. I would show the whole world that I was capable of doing so. On the way over I got the money in readiness, 
held every farthing of it in my hand, bent down over the old woman's table as if I wanted something, clapped the money without further ado into her hands. I spoke not a word, turned on my heel, and went my way. What a wonderful savor there is in feeling oneself an honest man once more! My empty pockets troubled me no longer. It was simply a delightful feeling to me to be cleaned out. When I weighed the whole matter thoroughly, this money had in reality cost me much secret anguish. I had really thought about it with dread and shuddering time upon time. I was no hardened soul. My honorable nature rebelled against such a low action. God be praised! I had raised myself in my own estimation again. Do as I have done, I said to myself, looking across the thronged market-place, only just do as I have done. I had gladdened a poor old cake-vendor to such good purpose that she was perfectly dumbfounded. Tonight her children wouldn't go hungry to bed. I buoyed myself up with these reflections, and considered that I had behaved in a most exemplary manner. God be praised! The money was out of my hands now. Tipsy and nervous, I wandered down the street and swelled with satisfaction. The joy of being able to meet Yahali cleanly and honorably, and a feeling I could look her in the face, ran away with me. I was not conscious of any pain. My head was clear and buoyant. It was as if it were a head of mere light that rested and gleamed on my shoulders. I felt inclined to play the wildest pranks, to do something astounding, to set the whole town in a ferment. All up through Gronson I conducted myself like a madman. There was a buzzing in my ears, and intoxication ran riot in my brains. The whim seized me to go and tell my age to a commissionaire, who, by the way, had not addressed a word to me, to take hold of his hands and gaze impressively in his face and leave him again without any explanation. I distinguished every nuance in the voice and laughter of the passers-by, observed some little birds that hopped before me in the street, took to studying the expression of the paving-stones, and discovered all sorts of tokens and signs in them. Thus occupied, I arrive at length at Parliament Place. I stand all at once stock-still and look at the droskies. The drivers are wandering about chatting and laughing. The horses hang their heads and cower in the bitter weather. Go ahead, I say, giving myself a dig in the elbow. I went hurriedly over to the first vehicle and got in. Jovitsvaya number 37, I called out, and we rolled off. On the way the driver looked round, stooped and peeped several times into the trap, where I sat, sheltered underneath the hood. Had he, too, grown suspicious? There was no doubt of it. My miserable attire had attracted his attention. I want to meet a man, I called to him, in order to be beforehand with him, and I explained gravely that I really must meet this man. We stop outside 37, and I jump out, spring up the stairs right to the third story, seize a bell, and pull it. It gives six or seven fearful peals inside. A maid comes out and opens the door. I notice that she has round gold drops in her ears, and black stuff buttons on her grey bodice. She looks at me with a frightened air. I inquire for Kirov, Joachim Kirov, if I might add further, a wool dealer. 
in short, not a man one could make a mistake about. The girl shook her head. No Kirilf lives here, said she. She stared at me and held the door ready to close it. She made no effort to find the man for me. She really looked as if she knew the person I inquired for, if she would only take the trouble to reflect a bit. The lazy jade! I got vexed, turned my back on her, and ran downstairs again. He wasn't there, I called to the driver. Wasn't he there? No. Drive to Tomtegaden, number eleven. I was in a state of the most violent excitement, and imparted something of the same feeling to the driver. He evidently thought it was a matter of life and death, and he drove on, without further ado. He whipped up the horse sharply. What's the man's name? he inquired, turning round on the box. Kirilf, a dealer in wool. Kirilf. And the driver, too, thought this was a man one would not be likely to make any mistake about. Didn't he generally wear a light morning coat? What? I cried. A light morning coat? Are you mad? Do you think it is a teacup I am inquiring about? This light morning coat came most inopportunely. It spoilt the whole man for me, such as I had fancied him. What was it you said he was called? Kirilf. Of course, I replied. Is there anything wonderful in that? The name doesn't disgrace anyone. Hasn't he red hair? Well, it was quite possible that he had red hair, and now that the driver mentioned the matter, I was suddenly convinced that he was right. I felt grateful to the poor driver, and hastened to inform him that he had hit the man off to a T. He really was just as he described him, and I remarked in addition that it would be a phenomenon to see such a man without red hair. It must be him I drove a couple of times, said the driver. He had a knobbed stick. This brought the man vividly before me, and I said, Ha ha! I suppose no one has ever yet seen the man without a knobbed stick in his hand. Of that you can be certain, quite certain. Yes, it was clear that it was the same man he had driven. He recognized him, and he drove so that the horse's shoes struck sparks as they touched the stones. All through this phase of excitement I had not for one second lost my presence of mind. We pass a policeman, and I notice his number is sixty-nine. This number struck me with such vivid clearness that it penetrated like a splint into my brain. Sixty-nine. Accurately, sixty-nine. I wouldn't forget it. I leant back in the vehicle, a prey to the wildest fancies, crouched under the hood so that no one could see me. I moved my lips and commenced to talk idiotically to myself. Madness rages through my brain, and I let it rage. I am fully conscious that I am succumbing to influences over which I have no control. I begin to laugh, silently, passionately, without a trace of cause, still merry and intoxicated from the couple of glasses of ale I have drunk. Little by little my excitement abates. My calm returns more and more to me. I feel the cold in my sore finger, and I stick it down inside my collar to warm it a little. At length we reach Tomtegaden. The driver pulls up. I alight without any haste, absently, listlessly, with my head heavy. I go through a gateway and come into a yard across which I pass. I come to a door which I open and pass through. I find myself in a lobby. 
a sort of anteroom with two windows. There are two boxes in it, one on top of the other, in one corner, and against the wall an old painted sofa-bed, over which a rug is spread. To the right, in the next room, I hear voices and the cry of a child, and above me, on the second floor, the sound of an iron plate being hammered. All this I notice the moment as I enter. I step quietly across the room to the opposite door without any haste, without any thought of flight, open it too, and come out in Vogman's garden. I look up at the house through which I have passed, refreshment and lodgings for travellers. It is not my intention to escape, to steal away from the driver who is waiting for me. I go very coolly down Vogman's garden, without fear of being conscious of doing any wrong. Kirov, the dealer in wool, who has spooked in my brain so long, this creature in whose existence I believe, and whom it was of vital importance that I should meet, had vanished from my memory, was wiped out with many other mad whims which came and went in turns. I recalled him no longer, except as a reminiscence, a phantom. In measure, as I walked on, I became more and more sober, felt languid and weary, and dragged my legs after me. The snow still fell in great moist flakes. At last I reached Groenland, far out near the church. I sat down to rest on a seat. All the passers-by looked at me with much astonishment. I fell a-thinking. Thou good God, what a miserable plight I have come to! I was so heartily tired and weary of all my miserable life that I did not find it worth the trouble of fighting any longer to preserve it. Adversity had gained the upper hand. It had been too strong for me. I had become so strangely poverty-stricken and broken, a mere shadow of what I once had been. My shoulders were sunken right down on one side, and I had contracted a habit of stooping forward fearfully as I walked, in order to spare my chest what little I could. I had examined my body a few days ago, one noon, up in my room, and I had stood and cried over it the whole time. I had worn the same shirt for many weeks, and it was quite stiff with stale sweat, and had chafed my skin. A little blood and water ran out of the sore place. It did not hurt much, but it was very tiresome to have the tender place in the middle of my stomach. I had no remedy for it, and it wouldn't heal of its own accord. I washed it, dried it carefully, and put on the same shirt. There was really no help for it, it. I sit there on the bench and ponder over all this, and am sad enough. I loathe myself. My very hands seem distasteful to me. The loose, almost coarse expression of the backs of them pains me, disgusts me. I feel myself rudely affected by the sight of my lean fingers. I hate the whole of my gaunt, shrunken body and shrink from bearing it, from feeling it envelop me. Lord, if the whole thing would come to an end now, I would heartily, gladly die. Completely worsted, soiled, defiled, and debased in my own estimation, I rose mechanically and commenced to turn my steps homeward. On the way I passed a door upon which the following was to be read on a plate, winding sheets to be had at Miss Anderson's, door to the right. Old memories, I muttered, as my thoughts flew back to my former room in Hammersborg. The little rocking chair, the newspapers near the door, 
the lighthouse director's announcement, and Fabian Olsen, the baker's new-baked bread. Ah, yes, times were better with me then than now. One night I had written a tale for ten shillings. Now I couldn't write anything. My head grew light as soon as I ever attempted it. Yes, I would put an end to it now, and I went on and on. As I got nearer and nearer to the provision shop, I had the half-conscious feeling of approaching a danger, but I determined to stick to my purpose. I would give myself up. I ran quickly up the steps. At the door I met a little girl who was carrying a cup in her hands, and I slipped past her and opened the door. The shop-boy and I stand face to face alone for the second time. Well, he exclaims, fearfully bad weather now, isn't it? What did this going round the bush signify? Why didn't he seize me at once? I got furious and cried, Oh, I haven't come to prate about the weather. This violent preliminary takes him aback. His little huckster brain fails him. It has never even occurred to him that I have cheated him of five shillings. Don't you know, then, that I have swindled you? I query impatiently, and I breathe quickly with the excitement. I tremble, and am ready to use force if he doesn't come to the point. But the poor man has no misgivings. Well, bless my soul! What stupid creatures one has to mix with in this world! I abuse him, explain to him every detail as to how it had all happened show him where the fact was accomplished, where the money had lain, how I had gathered it up in my hand and closed my fingers over it, and he takes it all in and does nothing. He shifts uneasily from one foot to the other, listens for footsteps in the next room, makes signs to hush me, to try and make me speak lower, and says, at last, It was a mean enough thing of you to do. No, hold on, I explained in my desire to contradict him, to aggravate him. It wasn't quite so mean as he imagined it to be, in his huckster head. Naturally, I didn't keep the money. That could never have entered my head. I, for my own part, scorned to derive any benefit from it. That was opposed to my thoroughly honest nature. What did you do with it, then? I gave it away to a poor old woman, every farthing of it. He must understand that that was the sort of person I was. I didn't forget the poor, so. He stands there and thinks over this a while, becomes manifestly very dubious as to how far I am an honest man or not. At last he says, Oughtn't you rather to have brought it back again? Now listen here, I reply. I didn't want to get you in trouble in any way, and that is the thanks one gets for being generous. Here I stand and explain the whole thing to you, and you simply, instead of being ashamed as a dog, make no effort to settle the dispute with me. Therefore I wash my hands of you, and as for the rest, I say, the devil take you. Good day. I left, slamming the door behind me, and when I got home to my room, into the melancholy hole, wet through from the soft snow, trembling in my knees from the day's wanderings, I dismounted instantly from my high horse and sank together once more. I regretted my attack upon the poor shop-boy, wept, clutched myself by the throat to punish myself for my miserable trick, and behaved like a lunatic. He had naturally been in the most deadly terror for the sake of his situation. He had not dared to make any fuss about the five shillings that were lost to the business, 
and I had taken advantage of his fear, had tortured him with my violent address, stabbed him with every loud word that I had roared out. And the master himself had perhaps been sitting inside the inner room, almost within an ace of feeling called upon to come out and inquire what was the row. No, there was no longer any limit to the low things I might be tempted to do. Well, why hadn't I been locked up? Then it would have come to an end. I would almost have stretched out my wrists for the handcuffs. I would not have offered the slightest resistance. On the contrary, I would have assisted them. Lord of heaven and earth, one day of my life for one happy second again, my whole life for a mess of lintels, hear me only this once. I lay down in the wet clothes I had on, with a vague idea that I might die during the night, and I used my last strength to tidy up my bed a little, so that it might appear a little orderly about me in the morning. I folded my hands and chose my position. All at once I remember Yahali, to think that I could have forgotten her the entire evening through, and light forces its way ever so faintly into my spirit again. A little ray of sunshine that makes me so blessedly warm, and gradually more sun comes, a rare, silken, balmy light that caresses me with soothing loveliness, and the sun grows stronger and stronger, burns sharply in my temples seethes fiercely and glowingly in my emaciated brain, and at last a maddening pyre of rays flames up before my eyes, a heaven and earth in conflagration, men and beasts of fire, mountains of fire, devils of fire, an abyss, a wilderness, a hurricane, a universe in brazen ignition, a smoking, smoldering day of doom. And I saw and heard no more. End of section 9